as we venture into the murky waters of everything you've been told never to bring up at holiday dinner. You'll meet a guy, someone you can trust, a battle-tested, common-sense leader who knows that an extra pair of dry socks just might save your life. That wise old sage has arrived, and he is shouting the Schmidt Show battle cry. Schmidt heads unite! Good morning, good afternoon, come appropriate greetings wherever you are in the world, in the United States. I'm Brad Schmidt. I am your host of the Schmidt Show podcast. Thanks for joining me this morning, and we have a great show planned for you today. Unfortunately, we are sans Hig this morning. The Hig is on his way back from the Southern California area, or Southern California uh, Linux Expo. He's uh, plane landed in Minneapolis this morning, and he's on his way home, so he is unable to join us this morning. Um, but we have a great topic for you today. We're going to talk about what I'm calling a crisis of credibility. And this crisis of credibility is related specifically to the the discussion of anti-science, the, the discussion of um, the, the left calling the right anti-science, the right calling the left anti-science, the, the, the mushy middle calling everybody anti-science, the anti-vaxxers calling the doctors anti-science, the doctors calling the anti-vaxxers anti-science, all of that kind of stuff. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about whether or not science is a thing, which obviously it is, but whether or not it's actually even possible to be anti-science. I think it is. I, I think there are some folks that, um, and I guess I wouldn't say that they are anti-science. I would suggest that they are, um, they, they simply reject science um, in favor of emotion, which is a very dangerous place to be when it relates to dealing with especially public policy. Um, as it relates to public policy in the world of government, as it relates to public policy in the world of economics, as it relates to public policy in the world of just generally doing life, right? Like the 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 um, the simple things that we wouldn't necessarily consider, um, you know, governmental issues, even public policy as it relates to things like the park districts. And, and the forestry service and the Olympics and all of the different things that we don't necessarily consider to be government. They don't really fall into the realm of, 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 um, of economics, but maybe more in the world of business or even nonprofit type of situations. Now, most park districts and, and things like that are controlled by or handled by the various local governments, you know, it's a branch of a local government generally, um, but sometimes it's not. And and for the most part, um, we're going to be talking about how the issue of science or the I, I would say I, I struggle with the the con the with the with the the term anti science, and I'll explain why. I found a um, a fantastic article written by a guy named Wesley J. Smith. I've never heard of him before. I don't know what his background is. Um, he wrote this article for a website called First Things. I did a little bit of, of digging into like their about page and and who they are. And essentially, um, they are a group of of scholars and and intelligent folks 
who their their well their line says or their their the first paragraph of their about says first things is published by the Institute on Religion and Public Life, an interreligious nonpartisan research and educational organization. The institute was founded in 1989 by Richard John Newhouse and his colleagues uh, to front the ideology of secularism, which insists that the public square must be naked and that faith has no place in shaping public conversation and shaping public policy. So you're, you're going to get from this individual and from this article, obviously a, a religious bent or a, a, um, a Christian worldview and a faith um, ideology. So, um, that's where we'll start. In the interest of full disclosure, I don't want to pretend that this is some sort of non-biased, um, you know, scholarly kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Scholarly or non-biased um, uh, endeavor. It is more of, it is obviously scholarly. It is obviously, um, I believe, intelligently written. Um, but it does certainly have its bias, as 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 I do, as we all do, right? That's and this is one of the things as we get into this discussion. This is one of the things that I'm going to bring up when we start talking about bias in politics and bias in reporting and bias in in debates and bias in research and all that sort of thing. We all have biases. The biggest difference that I've found um, among the right and left, and as it relates to the political divisions in our country. The, the right generally is willing to admit their bias, and the left refuses to even acknowledge there is such a thing as bias unless it is a bias against their viewpoint. And you see this all the time in, in, in journalism, especially in the mainstream media. People like Jim Acosta, people like, uh, um, who's the hardball guy? Chris Matthews, Wolf Blitzer, even, even on Fox, on Shepard uh, Smith and... And uh, Sean Hannity and some of these, Sean Hannity, of course, on the right, he almost seems to think that they're, that he's never biased, that he's just um, reciting the facts and, and, and trying to ignore that there is a bias. But the truth is, and I, I don't have anything against Sean, Sean's a great guy and, and obviously a very successful broadcaster and a very successful television host, there's no question about that. I'm not, I'm not trying to bash him, but the, the oftentimes the, the left is more... Um, biased and and unwilling to acknowledge the bias, but again, in the interest of full disclosure, it does happen on the right as well. But guys, like I said, you know whether it's whether it's uh, Chris Matthews or or uh, Anderson Cooper or whatever, they 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 kind of try to pretend that they're not biased. That 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 almost as if bias doesn't exist unless it's coming from somebody like a Sean Hannity or a Rush Limbaugh or somebody like myself. And not that I'm trying to put myself on the same level as Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh, but you get the point. So this this idea of bias is is something that we need to at least acknowledge in in the world of debate because we all have it and we all have our, our leanings, we all have our bents. And the the biggest difference, like I said, I found is that most of the time the left refuses to even acknowledge the bias and the right typically, even though there are some that do the same thing, the right typically is a little more willing to admit 
and acknowledge their bias. It's something that I try to do intentionally as often as possible. I am without question biased. I lean to the right. I've never pretended to be anything else. I've never pretended to be down the middle of the road. I'm open to discussion. I'm open to hearing everything that that anybody on all sides of any argument has to say, but um, to pretend that I'm not biased is... is uh, is disingenuous, and I, and I just don't plan on doing it. So this article written by this guy named Wesley J. Smith on firstthings.com um, talks about the quote-unquote real anti-science. He says this in the opening paragraph. He says, when Bill Nye, the science guy, complains of a war being waged on science, he should look in the mirror. Nye, who is actually the man- mechanical engineering guy, that's his educational background, is more guilty of undermining science, properly understood, by politicizing it than almost anyone this side of Al Gore. No one is attacking science. Why would they? Science is a powerful method for understanding the physical universe. Science's tools are observation, careful measurement, testing, experimentation, falsification, and the like. Given the incalculable benefits that have arisen from applied scientific endeavors over the centuries, who on earth is is not pro-science. So then the question that he asks is, why then did science become the subject of international protective protest march? The, the, the simple answer, as he states it, is political cynicism. These, these groups of people that try to claim that you or I or someone else is anti-science is simply a, um, a result of taking hot-button public policy issues and trying to turn them into scientific issues so that they can take this argument of anti-science and focus it back on you. And, and they do that in an effort to discredit you. Because if they can prove that you are anti-science or even suggest that you are anti-science, as the great Rush Limbaugh always says, the, the accusation is now more important than the actual evidence to suggest whether or not you're guilty or not what, anymore. The, the idea being that it is no longer important whether or not you are guilty. The only thing that matters is the seriousness of the charge, right? It doesn't matter if, if you have actually killed 6 million Jews. The only accusation or the only thing that matters is if I can accuse you with even the slimmest amount of credibility of being a Nazi or being Hitler, that's all that matters because that's what the media runs with. That's what the, the smart talking heads run with. This is what the, the people who, who sell the narrative and push the narrative and craft the narrative do. They, if, they, if they can simply accuse you of being a Nazi, if they can simply accuse you of being Hitler or, you know, whatever, pick, a, pick an, an evil figure from history, then if they can try to, uh, or if they can successfully, like say, with even the slimmest of credibility, if they can attach you to those people, then they no longer have to debate you, right? Because who's going to debate with Hitler, right? At this point, we all know 
the average general, I mean, other, unless the, you're some crazy wacko nut job who actually believes in the the stupid things that Hitler believed in and the stupid things that he tried to push, I would say most people, a very, 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 very huge majority of people understand and recognize that Hitler was evil. And so if I can equate you with Hitler, well, then why would I even talk? If you're Hitler, why am I going to have a debate with you? You've been proven wrong for 70 plus years. You've been proven to be evil. You have been revealed as evil for, for decades. I'm not even going to bother talking to you anymore. If, and if you're not worthy of talking to, then I don't have to debate with you. I don't have to actually develop a rational argument. I don't have to develop a logical uh, debate as to why you are wrong or as to why your position is untenable. I can simply call you Hitler, and because you're Hitler, we don't have to debate anymore. And it, and it makes me intellectually lazy. It makes the, 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 the viewer, the, the person who is, is hearing the b- debate, it makes them understand that, well, this person's not worth talking to or listening to. And immediately the discussion is over. Instead of actually having then a real debate about science, about whatever, about politics, about economics, about policy, about whatever, we have now devolved into your Hitler or you're a Nazi or you're a white supremacist or you're KKK or you're whatever and not worth talking to. And we never really actually get to the understanding or the discussion of why it is bad to do this thing or why it is, it is inappropriate to get into changing this policy. So that has to be a part of this discussion. And that's why this, this, this idea or this concept of being anti-science exists. It's not because they actually believe that you're anti-science. It's not that they actually think that you are, um, some crazy, you know, you know, whatever, you know, pick a, a, a crazy position on science that you believe the the earth or the the moon is actually made of cheese, or you believe that the the sun is actually a, uh, you know, a big giant rubber ball in the sky, you know, whatever crazy thing that you believe, if I can pin that on you, then we don't have to actually have a a real debate. Um, There's, there's, he, he points out in this article, this, this Wesley Smith points out in the article that there's essentially three um, ways that the supposed defenders of science actually undermine science because they they are then they're they're not only harming their own credibility but they are they are going to in the long run they're going to actually undermine actual science so one of the things that they do he says is they conflate science with ethics and morality science by definition is amoral it doesn't have a morality. It doesn't have a, an understanding of ethics. It doesn't care if it is right or wrong to do a thing. It only addresses whether or not it is possible, it is realistic, or, or whatever, right? 
the, the, the discussion of abortion. Science doesn't tell us whether or not abortion is ethically and or morally inappropriate. It simply tells us what it is. It tells us whether or not it's possible. It doesn't tell us that we should or should not do it. Stem cell research, the idea of stem cell research, there is no, there, there is ethics as it relates to whether or not we should do stem cell research on, on, um, on embryonic stem cells. The, the, the idea of doing stem cell research on embryonic cells has no ethics at all. The science of it simply says, is it possible? The science of it says, what can we learn from it? The science of it says, what is the, the benefit of it? Long-term, short-term, medically, you know, whatever, right? There's, there, is no, um, there is no ethics to it. The ethics are, the, the emotional debate is, the moral debate is whether or not we should do stem cell research on embryonic stem cells. And, and the way that that is addressed is, hey, can we do the same stem cell research on adult stem cells? The, 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 the other, I guess, moral or ethical question is whether or not the, the benefits of destroying embryos for the purpose of harvesting stem cells is actually beneficial. Now, if it is, does do the benefits override or outweigh the the concept or the belief that that embryo was in fact a human or would it grow to become a human those are the those are the ethical issues the science of embryonic research the, the of embryonic stem cell research is and and nobody acknowledges it, or nobody denies it. Even even as a person who struggles with the concept of destroying an embryo because I believe it's a human life or will become a human life, like my morals and my ethics tell me I struggle with that. But I don't deny that there are there is valid science to embryonic stem cell research. My argument is not a scientific one. My argument against embryonic stem cell research is not a scientific argument, and therefore I'm not anti-science. I'm simply saying, do we really want to be a society that is willing to throw away, to, to destroy life for the purpose of research? Like, is that an ethical thing to do, right? That's the argument. It's not that I'm anti-science. It's not that I don't want to, to dig into embryonic stem cell research. It's not that I don't want to, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, not, it's not that I don't want to dig into stem cell research. It's the idea that I want to at least have the conversation and, and talk about the ethics of destroying a human embryo for the purposes of medical research. Now, if you can convince me, if you can show me that there is enough valid information, there is enough benefit to outweigh the cost, well, then that's a different discussion than whether or not I believe in the science of embryonic stem cell research. Of course, I believe in the science. It's, it's been proven regularly that there is 
science and there is information to be gained from various kinds of research. The question that I want to ask, the question that I think we should ask in those situations is, what are the ethics of it? He goes on to use a, uh, an example of Bill Nye again in the article to talk about the, um, the discussion of conflating science with morality. He says this, and I'll just read the, the paragraph here. He says, Nye has been a prime example of this, talking about conflating science with ethics and morality, across a wide swath of public controversies, from climate change to abortion. With regard to the latter, Nye infamously appeared in a YouTube video promoting abortion rights in which he contended that pro-lifers lack a proper scientific understanding of the facts. But in fact, he is the one who seems to be confused. Nye proclaims that fertilized eggs are not human, even though an egg, once fertilized, ceases to exist as the one-celled embryo called the zygote comes into being. He continues that the sperms joining the ovum is not all you need. You have to attach the to the uterine wall, the inside of a womb, a woman's womb. It could be argued that the implant, implantation is the point at which a woman becomes pregnant. But that doesn't have anything to do with the biological nature of the embryo itself. Besides embryology textbooks, real science tells us that a new organism, or to put it another way, a human being, comes into existence once fertilization has been completed. Now that is a discussion of science, the science of abortion, and the ethics of the embryo. Those are two different discussions. Bill Nye wants to talk only about the science of what a, when, when pregnant, or when a woman becomes pregnant, all that kind of stuff, because he doesn't want to have to deal with the ethics of the situation. He doesn't want to have to acknowledge the ethics of of what is an embryo, what becomes, a, or what a zygote is. And if I can simply move away from that discussion and call you anti-science and, con- and, and try to conflate you with being an anti-science or a science denier, then I don't have to have the debate about the ethics. If I can simply a- accuse you, unfoundedly so, of being anti-science, then I don't have to have an actual debate with you about the reality of, about the ethics of, about the, the morality of what is happening within the woman's womb to the zygote, which becomes the embryo, which becomes the fetus, which becomes the baby. Because I've already determined that you're anti-science, so I'm not going to bother having the rest of that discussion. And, and so... This is a, a, a classic, classic tactic of the radical left. If I just say you're anti-science, then I don't have to have the real debate because nobody denies that there is more to pregnancy than a sperm cell um, melding with, combining with an egg cell and becoming a zygote and then requiring implementation or implantation into the um, into the wall, the uterine wall and all that. Nobody denies that that happens. Nobody denies that that's a part of the process. I don't. The, those of us who are pro life don't deny any of that. The simple question that we're asking is, and it's not such a simple question, if I'm honest. The question that we're asking is, 
What do we do about the zygote? What do we do about the embryo? What do we do about the fetus? Because that is the ethical side, that is the moral side of the scientific question. Because even though there is no morals, there is no ethics in science, we can't deny that the two go hand in hand. And they almost have to go hand in hand. There are some things that require no moral judgments. There is, there is no moral or ethical judgment when you talk about the combination of two hydrogen atoms with one oxygen atom becoming water. Like nobody, nobody, there's no moral or ethical judgment there. That is pure science. If you take two hydrogen atoms and you combine it with an oxygen atom, it becomes water. That's, there's, there's no real ethical dilemma there. That is something that is pure science. One plus one is two is pure mathematical science. There's no ethical, there's no moral judgment. But oftentimes in the more complicated scientific issues, there are um, moral and or ethical issues. Another thing that they do is they use the authority, and this is also in this article. In the article, I'll have a link to it in the in the show notes as well. That says they use the authority of scientific consensus to stifle heterodox hypotheses, and alternative fields of research. Now, heterodox is essentially, um, it, it's, it's uh, it, looking at the, the, um, the more orthodox discussions of or understandings of things and determining whether or not the, the, the things that we think we know are true or not. Then it's, go look it up on Google, you'll get it. Um, the, he says, he says this, he says, science is never truly settled. Indeed, challenging seemingly incontrovertible facts and continually retesting long accepted theories are crucial components of scientific method. Examples of perceived truths overturned by subsequent discoveries are ubiquitous. Here's just one. He says, so-called junk DNA that does not encode proteins was until relatively recently thought by a large majority of science to have no purpose and was even used as evidence of random and purposeless evolution. But continuing investigations in the field led to the discovery that most quote-unquote junk DNA actually serves important biological functions. So, and, th and this is true in a, in a lot of areas, right? For, for the longest time back in the... the I don't know, whatever, 40s, 50s, 20s, 30s, whenever it was, it was it was generally accepted that cigarettes really weren't that bad for you. No big deal. There was there was nothing wrong with it. Tobacco was just a, a, a natural product that that could be smoked for enjoyment or or whatever. No problems. Nothing to worry about until we found out that it caused cancer. Right? I mean, the this the list of these things goes on and on and on and on. Things that we thought we knew were to be were true, that are no longer believed to be true, and in fact have been proven false. There's a great, and I've mentioned this on my on my uh, terrestrial radio show. And if you want to join me beyond the podcast, you can do that to, at uh, it's knoxradio.com. I do a regular uh, three hour day radio show um, Monday through Friday, three p.m. to six p.m. Central Time here in America. 
Um, if you want to join the show, you can you can join us. It's KNOXradio.com, and you can hear more of what I've got to say. Um, but I use this example or, or this illustration on my on my terrestrial radio show all the time. And and one of the things that I say is there's a great line in the Men in Black movie, or there's a great scene, I should say, where where Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, Agent J and Agent K, are sitting on a park bench, and and Tommy Lee Jones is trying to recruit Will Smith into the into the fold of of the Men in Black, and they're talking about whatever they're talking about, and and Tommy Lee Jones says to Will Smith, 1,500 years ago, we knew the earth was flat. 500, or 1,500 years ago, we knew that the earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, we knew the earth was flat. And he says, and, and yesterday, you knew that we were alone on this planet. Imagine what we'll know tomorrow. Now, of course, it's facetious. It's a comedy movie. It's silly. It's a, it's a silly illustration. But the truth is, you know, we did know all these things. We knew that this junk DNA was, was nothing more than junk DNA and unnecessary for life and simply um, evidence of randomless pur- or random purposeless evolution until somebody did more research and they realized, eh, maybe it's not useless. Maybe there actually is a purpose for it. You know, we knew that this is just the way it was, you know, back in the, in the 1800s in the United States, we knew that, that black people weren't real people. They weren't as good as white people. They didn't have as much value as, as someone who was, um, white or European. They didn't have as much value as they were, they were, what was the, the, the three fifths compromise. They were three fifths of a human being until the folks who said, eh, I know that that's the general consensus, but I don't buy it. I believe that black people are just as good and just as valuable as white people or yellow people or brown people or green people or yellow with purple polka dot people or, or whatever. And I don't believe they are only, quote-unquote, three-fifths of a person. But they are fully valuable as a human being, period. The general consensus was accepted up until the mid-1800s and the early 1800s, really, if you go back a little ways, and the, quote-unquote, Republicans were arguing with the Democrats that said, dude, slavery's not okay. The Democrats in the 1850s and the 1860s said, no, slavery is just fine. In fact, we need slavery. We have to have slavery or the entire economy of the South will collapse. And the Republicans said, no, slavery is not okay. And even if it does mean that the economy collapse, we don't care what the quote unquote consensus is. Slavery is not acceptable. And Abraham Lincoln and, and the folks that he, um, formed the Republican Party with said slavery is not acceptable and we will fight the consensus of science, the consensus of political science, the, the consensus of economic science, and we will abolish slavery. And they did. Um, think what might have happened, says 
the author of the article. If science is scientists seeking to continue exploring this area of, of junk DNA had been warned away, had been told that scientific consensus said that they shouldn't be studying this area. What if the, the self-appointed guardians of existing perceived wisdom had gotten researchers to abandon their investigations for fear of losing university tenure? being scorned by colleges or having research funding blocked. The biological truth about non-protein coding DNA might well have never been discerned. Yet these are the very anti-science tactics, he says, developed today or deployed today to chill scientific challenges to the theory of evolution, to the questioning of the consensus of climate change conclusions, and of course others on and on and on and on. The so these are the three. Oh, I sorry, I didn't give you the third one. I gave two. The third one is um, that he says wielding the term anti-science as an epithet to stifle legitimate debate. I, I talked about this, but I didn't give you the author's perspective on this. He said he has been the subject of such attempted stifling. I, as a as a radio host, I get this all the time. People say, oh, you're just being anti-science. No, I'm not being anti-science. I'm simply wanting to have an ethical debate or a moral debate about the science that we are discussing. Um, Anyway, he says at first, or as first discussed in these pages a few years ago, he was branded, quote-unquote, anti-science by a guy named Glenn Hank Campbell, now the head of the American Council on Science and Health, who accused him of being of hating biology and viewing IBF, IVF as a tool of Lucifer. What I had done to deserve such public shaming, he says, was that he opposed a plan to use a novel IVF procedure to create a three-patient baby. Now, the anti-science argument is you hate IVF, you're anti-biology, you hate biology or whatever, and, and that IVF is a tool of Satan, which none of those things are true. He's simply saying, hey, let's have an ethical debate. Is it ethical? Is it moral to have a debate about in vitro fertilization that uses DNA spliced from three parents as opposed to a simple fertilization of an egg from one mother and one father? What are the what are the ethical and moral implications of trying to um splice DNA from multiple parents to create a quote unquote designer baby, right? Like those are, it's not that I'm anti-science. It's not that I don't think that those things are valid or possible. The simple question is, are they ethical? And, and sometimes the ethical or the answer to those ethical questions are simply, I don't know. I don't know if this is an ethical discussion. I don't know if there is a moral, um, tightrope that needs to be walked in this discussion. But we need to have the debate because if there is a moral discussion to be had, if there is an ethical discussion to be had, then that is the debate that needs to take place. Otherwise, we are no different than animals. There's nothing that sets us apart as human beings from the rest of creation. 
Um, this is this is where we start getting into some of the discussions of whether it's climate change or whether it's it's you know GMOs, um, genetic cloning, human cloning. Is that is that an is that a place that we need to be? Genetic engineering. Are are those areas? of science areas that we should be engaging in as human beings. Now I'm not opposed to, to using the study of genetics to figure out how to cure cancer. I'm not opposed to the, the genetics or the, the, um, the use of, of genetics to create, you know, more abundant food supplies for an ever growing population on planet earth. I'm not opposed to using science to find new and better and cleaner ways to create energy for cars or for power plants or for whatever it is that we are, are using energy for heating our homes or, or, you know, simply powering the infrastructure that we as human beings have come become accustomed to. None of that stuff I believe should be stopped. But when we start talking about genetic engineering and, and this is somewhat fanciful, but it's been written about and, and oftentimes truth is stranger than fiction. And, you know, when we start talking about whether or not we should be, you know, genetically splicing a, you know, a goat with a, with a sheep or a, a human with an ape or, or whatever it is, those those sorts of things are 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 things that need to be addressed or cloning like cr- taking my dna and creating a genetic clone of me is that an ethical place that we want to go as humans as a race as a species all of those questions need to be asked and it, and here's the thing it's okay to ask those questions because those questions can oftentimes lead to a better understanding of science. Not, not a stifling of science, but an actual, actually a better understanding of science because we, are, we don't shy away from the difficult questions. We don't shy away from the, the, the issues that, that cause some of this division. There are some people who are just simply not emotionally connected to the rest of humanity. And and those people, if left to their own devices, can be a very dangerous part of society. But those people also are the ones who are sometimes willing to, to stretch the boundaries of what is possible and lead us into great new discoveries. And so we need those people as much as we need the bleeding hearts to say, Hey, whoa, 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 wait a second. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't get to clone or, or, you know, genetically engineer a half human, half, you know, bull to create a, uh, what was it? A Taurus, you know, that that's not, 
It's not acceptable. You don't get to create a, a half horse, half man and create a Pegasus or whatever it is that they call those. Like that, those are some ethical issues. We need people to say, hey, whoa, 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 step too far. Back up. We need to rethink this. Um, when you have a an entire state legislature having the discussion about whether or not it's acceptable to allow a baby to die in a delivery room simply because mom decided she didn't want the baby. Like there, there needs to be people who step in morally and ethically and say, whoa, 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 hold on. Infanticide is not acceptable. Infanticide is not an acceptable behavior in a civilized society. This is a discussion we need to have. And I'm not anti-science because I say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a second. That baby was born alive. We need to do something about helping that child survive. We need to do something about making sure that that baby gets the medical care and the medical attention that it needs. The other side of this discussion is public policy stuff. Um, and one of those being climate change and, and whether or not it's caused by man and, and all of this kind of thing. I want to just bring this up here real quick that we oftentimes on the right, people like me are oftentimes accused of being anti-science because I don't buy into the myth that human beings have the the horsepower to aff- affect the global climate in a matter of five to eight to ten years. Some would even argue that human beings of on the planet don't even have the ability to manipulate or the horsepower to to radically change the climate or even minutely change the climate over the course of a hundred years or a thousand years. And we're called anti-science because we want to dig into a little bit more about the reasons why this, the, the world is warming up. Most people who are skeptical of the, the modern environmentalist movement with climate change and all of that, most of the people who, who are skeptical of that aren't saying that climate change isn't happening. They're simply saying, hey, what's the cause of this? What's making the world do this? The, the, the science seems to be fairly clear that the earth has warmed up. Where I live, in, literally in the place that I'm sitting right now, if I am told or, or with, if what I was told in my elementary school science books is true, then 10 to 12 to 15,000 years ago, the place where I'm sitting right now was covered with a mile-thick sheet of ice. A massive glacier that covered most of the, the northern half of North America. The place that I am sitting literally right at this very moment was covered with a mile-thick sheet of ice. If what my science books tell me was true. What I learned in elementary school science, in earth science in middle school, in, in physical science in high school, 
if those teachers, if those professors were telling me the truth, the place where I'm sitting right now, 15,000 years ago, was covered in a mile-thick sheet of ice. That's not the case anymore. That's just not true anymore. I look outside, there's a few feet of snow on the ground. But it's going to be warming up in a couple of weeks, and that snow is going to be melting. And we will grow corn and canola and sunflowers, and we will grow wheat and we will grow barley and we will grow rye and flax and, and corn and all sorts of other plants right here in the ground, sugar beets and more, where 15,000 years ago we were covered with a mile-thick sheet of ice. So what caused the earth to warm up 15,000 years ago? It wasn't 7 billion people on the planet. It wasn't chlorofluorocarbons from, from hairspray. It wasn't R12 Freon from our air conditioners and our refrigerators. It wasn't SUVs. It wasn't... any of the other you know, issues of smog or greenhouse gases or CO2 concentrations being too high from, from coal-fired power plants. It was caused by something else. And so the discussion then has to become, hey, wait a second. If you're going to tell me that the earth is being warmed up by humanity, then you have to be able to explain to me why 15,000 years ago it warmed up in the absence of all of the things that you have said that are causing it now. And that is a fair discussion. But because the, the radical left doesn't want you to have the discussion because for them, it is not about the science. It is about the ethics of it. And if you get a leftist, to be honest, they will tell you that it ha- they don't care about the science of global warming. It's about the ethics. It's about the economics of it. Read, read Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's um, Green New Deal. It's not about, it's not about global warming or climate change or any of that. It's about economic leveling. The, the entire document is about economic leveling. It's about the emotion of it. I feel bad that there are poor people, and I feel bad that the rich people have, have taken advantage of the poor people in, an, in order to get rich, which are just not true, but that's, that's their belief. It is not a scientific argument. It is, an, it is an ethical, it is a moral argument. Now, I will argue on the side of the the environmentalists in saying, I want clean water. I want clean air. I'm okay with the emissions equipment that we put on our cars that limit gas mileage, that limit horsepower, that limit um, performance and and make it more difficult to work on the cars. I'm okay with that because in doing those things, we limit smog and pollution in our air. And, and that's a good thing. I'm okay with the science of emissions controls on our cars. 
And technology has gotten so good that these things are much more reliable than they've ever been. And cars nowadays, instead of going 100,000 miles in a life expectancy, they're going 200 or 300 or 400,000 miles. And a car with 200,000 miles on it still has value. And, and so I'm okay with the science of, of climate change. I'm okay with the science behind environmentalism. What I'm not okay with is the shady morals and ethics of the radical environmentalists. So again, the discussion comes back to Nobody's really anti-science. The question comes back to, or the discussion becomes the morals and the ethics behind the science and which part of that discussion is more important. And I would suggest that both parts of that discussion are important. Sometimes the morals are more important. Sometimes the science is more important. Because sometimes the morals, the ethics that give purpose to the science are not either my morals or they're simply, um, I don't want to say inappropriate, they're simply morals and or ethics that have been misconstrued. So, as I've said many, many, many times today, we have a crisis of morals and ethics more than we have a crisis of science. And that that crisis of morals and ethics leads us to a crisis of credibility. And when people like Bill Nye claim that I am anti-science because I want to discuss the morals and ethics of abortion. It damages his credibility. When people like Al Gore continue to state these doomsday predictions that the world is going to end in 10 years and the polar ice caps are going to be melted by the winter of 2015 and the world, we're all going to die and use that as, as scare tactics, scare tactics, scare, easy for me to say, scare tactics and fear mongering to force me into a different moral and ethical understanding of finances and to force on society his economic, his preferred economic system then he has no credibility. If they were simply to say, if the radical environmentalists were simply to say, hey, the reason we need to do this is to prevent smog and, and create economic leveling across the world, hey, at least you're being honest. At least you're telling the truth about what you're doing. And if you, if you were to say that the reason abortion is important is because we think that people should just be able to kill babies whenever they want. 
Well, hey, at least you're being honest. But to attack me for being anti-science because I want to have a discussion about the ethics and the morality of the science that we are discussing, well, it, it, it damages your credibility. So just know that if you're ever having these discussions, if you're ever having these debates with friends or family, and they accuse you of being anti-science, or they accuse you of, of trying to force your morality on them, just remember that they've lost the argument already. They've run out of things to rationally debate you on, and they've resorted to essentially to kindergarten name-calling by accusing you of being anti-science. So anyway, that is the Schmidt Show for Monday. What is it today? March 11th. And we will be back again next week. We will be with the Hig again next week, hopefully. Um, like I said, he's on his way back from the Southern California Linux Expo. So um, thanks to Noah, as always, for being our Hig and taking care of things. He actually offered to plug in his his remote connecting device. I'm not going to try and explain it. And literally, because it runs on battery power and connects through, through um, LGE, uh, cellular technology. He was literally willing to put a headset on while driving and be here with the Schmidt show. And I told him, I said, no, just drive home, be safe, get home and, and get some rest and, uh, and spend some time with family. So, uh, anyway, this has been the Schmidt show. I am of course your host, Brad Schmidt. Um, as I've mentioned a couple of times, things are beginning to pick up here with the Schmidt show podcast. We are trying to move in a more positive direction and we are wanting to get more content to you. We are wanting to get more information to you. We want to engage you more and more regularly. Um, but that costs money. And, uh, so if you uh, like what you hear on the Schmidt show, if you like the conversations we've had, whether it's been about politics or some of the special episode stuff that we've done with the everyday carry stuff, we would invite you to come join us at, uh, at Patreon and help support the Schmidt show. Uh, podcast. You can do that. You can become a member of the Schmidt Head Brigade for $17.76 a month. Um, we are working on getting rewards out for that um, beyond just the, you know, the, the actual um, stuff that you're already getting for free. Um, but the problem is that stuff all requires money as well um, to, you know, print t-shirts and, and, you know, sweatshirts and to, to create coffee mugs and the mug club or whatever like David Crowder does. All of that stuff costs money. So if you want to support the Schmidt Show, you can do that. Like say you can go to Patreon and uh, support us at the seventeen seventy six a month or whatever you feel you can afford or is appropriate. If it's only a dollar, that's fine. You can do that. If it's a million dollars, um, we've got a lot more stuff coming your way in a hurry. Uh, but whatever you can do to help us out, we would appreciate it. And as I said, we are working diligently to put together um, more and more content for you every day. The problem is I've got two full-time jobs already. I do a full-time radio show, which is technically a part-time job, but um, you get the point. I do a full-time three, three hours a day, five-day-a-week radio show. And I also work overnights. Uh, fueling locomotives for the railroad as well. So I've already got two full-time jobs, and then on top of it to try and do a weekly uh, podcast, 
uh, gets busy. So um, we need your help. And and I I don't mean to beg or 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 plead, but the truth is, uh, if we want to expand this the Schmidt Show podcast, um, we need your help. We need your partnership, and we would be uh, proud to have it. So the Schmidt Show is out for one more time. We will see you next week. Have a great day.